Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, we are almost about three-quarters of the way through our study of the perfections of God. We still have a couple of months to go, but we've already covered a lot of territory. And, and, and it's not unusual, in fact, I've heard it already quite often, it's not unusual that after a certain exposure to all of these doctrines, to this great teaching that we find in God's Word about His character, His essence, that there can be a sense in which we wonder whether we're actually growing in the knowledge of God. I've had someone recently come up to me and say, you know, I'm hearing all of this, and the more that I hear, I, I wonder whether I'm even growing in the knowledge of God or whether it's just going in one ear, out the other. I feel like I'm spinning my wheels. The more I study, the more ignorant I, am, I become. Is there any hope in this. And what I want to do just for a moment is encourage you with that, that if that is your experience, that as you have tracked with us over the last eight months, as we have studied these wonderful doctrines of God's perfections, that if you have sensed that you're, 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 you're only learning how much you don't know, that may in fact be evidence of the opposite that your growing awareness of your ignorance, your growing awareness of how much you have to learn is actually a wonderful testimony to the fact that you're on the right track and you're growing. One of the ways to illustrate this is to use some circles. Now, if we could identify our initial knowledge of God with a circle, we can put it up on the screen this way and say, this, is, this circle represents my initial knowledge of God. Maybe that knowledge you could identify with as it pertained to what you had before we started this series. Or maybe that initial knowledge relates to what your knowledge of God was two years ago. doesn't really matter, except that it, it shows us what we were at an earlier point in terms of our knowledge of God and what the circumference around that circle represents is our awareness of the grandeur and the incomprehensibility of God. What's within the circle represents that truth that we have come to know. What's on the outside represents Awareness, awareness of how great and glorious and majestic God is and how utterly beyond us and wholly other He is. Now notice, in our finite minds, our awareness even of what we don't know is limited. And you can liken it to the circumference around that circle. But notice what happens as your knowledge grows, as that circle grows as you study God's Word and you learn more about His perfections, what happens to the circumference? The circumference grows. In other words, as you deepen your understanding of how great and glorious God is, the, the, the impression that you will receive as that 
knowledge grows is that you know less, not because you really do in terms of quantity, but because with what you know, you are now more exposed to how great and glorious God is that your awareness of his incomprehensibility has grown. And so in reality, what you thought is an indication that you're not growing is actually testimony of the opposite. And I want to encourage you this evening that if this is you and you, you sense that what has happened during this series so far is only that you, know, you feel that you know less today than you did a half year ago, I think that's testimony of the opposite. Your knowledge of God has grown and with it, your awareness of his grandeur, your sensitivity to that reality And this indicates that even for the rest of our lives, even for eternity, we will never be able to comprehend the greatness of God. He will never be able to be contained within our minds. And that's not a bad thing. Instead, that indicates how eternity will be devoted to probing the unfathomable depths of God's glory. And when we think of that, and we think of the incomprehensibility of God, one of the perfections that raises this to the surface is his perfection of wisdom. And so it's to that that we turn this evening as we continue our study and look deeper into the Word of God and the character of God and come to this next perfection, God's wisdom. And we have to begin with the question, what does wisdom mean? What, is, what does God's wisdom, divine wisdom, what is, what is that referring to? And in a statement, in a, in a simple sentence, we could define God's wisdom with these words. The wisdom of God refers to the perfect manner by which God achieves his purposes. The wisdom of God refers to the perfect manner by which God achieves his purposes. Now, what's important to note with all of God's perfections is that they're always in unity with one another. It's never that God is faithful but not loving. It's never that God is omnipresent but he's not full of grace. It's never that he is good but not holy. God's perfections are always one unified whole. And the same is true about God's wisdom. All of God's perfections are operative and expressed in this manner by which God achieves his purposes. But there are three perfections in particular which we see rise to the surface, so to speak, when we talk about the wisdom of God. In particular, these are the the ones. First of all, In God's wisdom, we see the outworking of his omniscience. Now, remember, how did we define omniscience? God's omniscience refers to his perfect and absolute knowledge of all things. Secondly, in God's wisdom, we also see manifest his omnipotence. How did we define that? Omnipotence refers to God's unhindered ability to accomplish anything that he pleases, And as he does, he is never drained of one iota of power. He remains infinite in his resources. That's God's omnipotence. And thirdly, 
God's goodness. In the wisdom of God, we see manifest His omnibenevolence, His goodness. And remember that we define God's goodness as His innate disposition to treat His creation generously. It is His disposition not to be vindictive, but to be generous. That's who God is. And what we see in God's wisdom is that these perfections in particular are put on display. They come together to demonstrate and to manifest God's wisdom. Let's look at that a little bit deeper. First of all, God knows all things. God knows all things. In fact, God knows the best purposes. He knows the best goals. Secondly, God not only knows all things, but he can do all things. God knows not only the best purposes, but he is limitless in his resources. And God not only knows all things and can do all things, but he always intends and achieves what is inherently good. His purposes are always perfectly good. And so when these things come together, we see the manifestation of his wisdom. And in this way, God always knows what goals are best and which means perfectly achieve those goals. And he never lacks the power to implement these means. So it's, it's really about ways, means, and ends, that each one of those is an aspect that, that God is involved in. He has his purposes. He knows the purpose. He knows the chief ends. He is all-knowing. He also has all the power, all the resources, all the means. That's his omnipotence. And he also has the ways. He also has the goodness in order to discern the best, most perfect way to achieve his goals. He knows how to get to those goals with absolute perfection. Jay Packer brings out a, an element of this when he looks at God's wisdom with respect to God's omnipotence. He writes this. He says, wisdom without power would be pathetic, a broken reed. Power without wisdom would be merely frightening. But in God, boundless wisdom and endless power are united, and this makes him utterly worthy of our fullest trust. Now, digging down deeper into this concept of wisdom, it's helpful to look at the biblical terms that are used for the concept of wisdom. And if we look at the Old Testament first, we come to a a term, a very important term in the Old Testament, a Hebrew term, the term chokmah. And that term chokmah can be defined very simply in these words. It, It refers to skill, Chokmah, or the Old Testament, the dominant Old Testament word for wisdom, speaks of skill. Remember that. It speaks of skill, particularly in technical matters. It it refers to practical experience and is often used to describe skill in living well. That's the word chokmah, the Hebrew term. 
One commentator describes it with a few more words in this way. He says this, it entails, quote, a practical knowledge that helps one to know how to act and how to speak in different situations. Wisdom entails the ability to avoid problems and the skill to handle them when they present themselves. Now, he's taking that definition primarily as it relates to wisdom in in human terms, particularly in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom as as we learn it. But the key idea to, to, to gain from this is that wisdom really refers to skill. It's not just knowledge. Wisdom refers to skill. It refers to the presence or possession of knowledge, but not only. And it also requires ability. It requires resources. It requires energy to achieve something. Skill does. It requires the ability to discern what is best in any given situation. The New Testament term, the term Sophia, has much of the same idea. The Greek term Sophia refers to the capacity to understand, but not only. It is the capacity to understand and function accordingly. So it speaks of, again, skill. And that's the idea that that we gather from these terms, these biblical terms related to wisdom. And these terms are the same terms that are used to refer to God. So how do we understand wisdom then with respect to God, especially with respect to his omnipotence and his omnibenevolence, with respect to his omniscience? It is this, that wisdom in God is his skill to achieve success. Wisdom is God's skill in achieving success. You could put it this way. God's ends, his purposes, his decrees, his designs are always true and right. They're always perfect. God's means, that is his resources, his strength, it is never inadequate. And God's ways, his strategies of application are always good. And because that is true, God is all-wise. To put it in the words of some theologians, the, the 19th century Baptist theologian J.L. Dagg put it this way, quote, God is infinitely wise because he selects the best possible end of action and because he adopts the best possible means for the accomplishment of the end which he has in view. Louis Burkhoff defines it this way. He said, God's wisdom is, quote, that perfection of God whereby he applies his knowledge to the attainment of his ends in a way which glorifies him most. In other words, in a way that demonstrates his glory, his majesty, his perfection to the utmost. Pastor John and Richard Mayhew define it this way. God's wisdom is his perfect knowledge of how to act skillfully so that he will accomplish all his good pleasure to glorify himself. That is what we 
are referring to when we talk about God's wisdom. And that's why this perfection is so very important for us to understand. Because although we can affirm the omnibenevolence of God, the omni, uh, omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God in theory, it's the application of those things that often challenge our thinking. How God achieves his ends. That's where we often have our problems. We'll agree that God has designed that wonderful end that we read of in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We read it and we all say, that's where we want to be. But how does God get from point A to point B? From the beginning of Genesis, and more specifically, from Genesis 3, how does he get there to Revelation 21 and 22, specifically with reference to each one of us individually? And while we can affirm those perfections in theory, it's, it's in God's wisdom where we sometimes ask the potter, why have you formed me this way? Why have you put me on this path? Why have you given me this circumstance? And when we do, we're questioning God's wisdom. In fact, there are a lot of misunderstandings of God's wisdom. And let me handle just four of these right now. You could add more to them, I'm sure. But these are four common ways in which God's wisdom is misunderstood. First of all, that God is all wise, that he's perfectly wise, what we call omnisapient. Omnisapient from the word all and wise. And, and homo sapien, we know that term, it means wise man. And so when we take that Latin term and put the, the uh, adjective omni in front of it, it means all wise, omnisapient. God is omnisapient. That God is omnisapient does not mean that his good purposes must be instantly recognized or realized. Now, when I say that, I'm not referring to the mind of God because he always knows his purposes. He never learns. He never has to. He always knows. What I mean by that statement is how we often look at our circumstances and what God is doing in them. And we must recognize that because God is all wise, it does not mean that the perfection of his purposes within specific circumstances must be, must be understood and realized immediately if, if God is to be acting in that all-wise kind of way. Instead, we must understand wisdom as an outworking. We must understand wisdom as a direction, as a trajectory. And that's communicated, for example, in Romans 8, verse 28, that text that we're all familiar with that is so comforting when we read this. We know that, all, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Notice that verb of causation, God causes. In other words, the end result of God's means, what he's applying to your life right now, does not need to be immediately understood, and that purpose for which he's designed that circumstance does not need to be immediately realized. That God is all wise does not require that his purposes be instantly recognized and realized. First Peter 5, 6, 
expresses this helpfully as well, where Peter says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you. And then there's always that last phrase, which we forget. At the proper time. For God, there is in the accomplishment of his means, in our experience, there is a causation and a timing. Secondly, that God is all-wise does not mean that he cannot utilize the evil actions of others to achieve his good purposes. Sometimes there's this idea that because God is all-good and all-wise, he is holy and he is righteous, that he can never use anything evil that comes into our life that is done by others. That whatever experience of evil we find is simply wasted. There's no good that can come out of it. And of course, we only need to go to the first book of the Bible, in particular the life of the patriarch Joseph, to remember what he stated at the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where we see just this, that Joseph acknowledged. He said, as for you, pointing to his brothers who sold him into slavery and who, 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 whose actions brought him into decades of suffering, Joseph said, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this result. No, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And he can precisely because he is all-wise. One of our problems is we tend to project upon God our inabilities. For us, we cannot use evil. We don't know how good things can come out of evil things because of our limited understanding. But that's the problem. We're limited. God, being all-wise, knows how to take the actions originated by other beings, actions of evil done against us. He can take those, and he can use them for his good purposes. Number three, that God is all-wise does not mean that he is responsible, then, for the evil that occurs in creation. This is sometimes connected to the discussion of what's called theodicy, trying to justify God and the presence of evil in the world at the same time. How can that be? And some will say, well, by the very fact that you have evil in the world, it must mean God is not all wise. He didn't have the right strategy. In some way, he could not have prevented this. And indeed, we don't have time to get into that very complex discussion tonight. We must realize that while this is a paradox for us, that God is sovereign, omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient, and that he is all-good, omnibenevolent, and at the same time evil exists, while we cannot understand all the lines of, of responsibility there and how these things fit together within God's greater plan, we do know this. God has said he is not the author of evil. James 1 verse 13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Again, how these truths measure up is for us, in our limited understanding, a paradox. But these are not contradictory truths, and because God is all-knowing and all-wise, they're perfectly resolvable in his mind, and we rest in that truth. Fourthly, that God is all-wise does not mean that he must answer to an external standard of wisdom. Now, few of us would say that this is the case. We would all agree that wisdom originates in God. And yet, in how we handle our discontent, in how we handle our circumstances, the practice of, of, of our actions in that circumstance to question God and his wisdom does just this. It puts God on the dock and measures God according to our perceived standard of wisdom. We think we know what is right and fair and just. And when we don't experience that, when we receive some kind of news or enter some kind of circumstance that doesn't conform to our preconceived notion, we put God in the dock and say, how could you? And we question God and his wisdom according to a standard that we have devised and we submit God, so to speak, to that standard. And of course, as the book of Job indicates to us, such an approach must be repented of. It must be met with repentance and not affirmed. Now, in light of these things, Let's go to the biblical testimony to God's wisdom. Where do we find the testimony? How do we find God's testimony, his witness of himself, bearing knowledge of this perfection of his essence? Well, we can find it in various categories. Let me begin with the first one. We see the Scripture's testimony to God's wisdom in that Scripture over and over testifies to the fact that God himself is the source of all wisdom. He is the source of all wisdom. Job chapter 28, it's a great chapter. If we had time, we'd read through the whole thing. It's a very powerful chapter that asks important questions about where wisdom is to be found. But here is a a true statement from the book of Job. As Job wrestles with his circumstances, here is truth about God's wisdom and he as the source of all wisdom. Where can wisdom be found? Where then does wisdom come from? And the answer is given, God understands its way, and he knows its place. Proverbs chapter 2, filled, Proverbs 2 and Proverbs 8, filled with these kinds of statements. But notice verse 6 of Proverbs 2, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. In other words, God is the sole source. When we think of wisdom and we think of skill and right living, we are to see that the only true source where that will come from is God 
himself. Proverbs chapter 8, a very well-known chapter in Proverbs where Lady Wisdom, the personification of wisdom, is, is described as standing on the street corner and, and inviting anyone who will come. And notice what she says about wisdom and its relationship to Yahweh. She says this, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Now Lady Wisdom here is is speaking in very metaphorical language. She's not intending to suggest that there was a time when God was not wise but instead showing that everything that God has done in time and space, everything that he has done in his creation, everything was preceded by God's possession of wisdom. He did it all from wisdom. A great statement in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Here Daniel says this, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. Now stop there for just a moment. Notice again the relationship of wisdom to omnipotence. They go together. Wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, and you have made known to us the king's matter. Very clearly, Daniel recognizes that God, as the all-wise one, is the source of all wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And he is the one who gives to all generously and without reproach. If you ask, it will be given to you. God is the source and standard of all wisdom. Number two, Scripture testifies that God's wisdom is particularly displayed in the beauty of creation. There is a purpose to the mountains. There is a purpose to the oceans, to the beaches, to those very manifold beauties of creation. There is a purpose to it. It is to show the handiwork of God. Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how many are your works. Now notice what he says next. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Psalm 136, verse 5. In that broader context of giving thanks to God... This is what the psalmist says, Give thanks to Him who made the heavens with skill, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Notice again how God's perfections all fit together. Psalm 139, verses 15 to 16. Here the psalmist extols God because of the skill in which He was knit together in His mother's womb. 
He says this, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully or wisely wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was none of them. Proverbs 3 verse 19 says this, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. If our eyes are open and we have our, the blinders removed and we look upon creation, we will see God's majestic wisdom. One Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink, describes this, this wisdom in this way. God is the supreme artist. Just as a human artist realizes his idea in the work of art, so God creates all things in accordance with the ideas he has formed. The world is God's work of art. He is the architect and builder of the entire universe. God does not work without thinking, but is guided in all his works by wisdom, by his ideas. He has purposes. He has decrees. He has goals. He has ends. And in creation, you see those purposes come to fruition. And that is the manifestation of God's wisdom. He knows how to do it. Thirdly, God's wisdom is manifested, the scriptures say, in the intricacies of providence. In the intricacies of Providence. His guidance and governance of the created realm goes all the way from the smallest of details to the, to the most expansive. We see God's intricate providence in something like what Joseph testified to in Genesis 50 verse 20. All of those years of moving people around, of getting Joseph from where he was in the land of Canaan to to the land of Egypt, to, to having him at the right place at the right time, but taking decades to get there through all of these seemingly dead ends and prison cells, and then he's there. And God orchestrates the famine in the land of Canaan to force that little tribe of people, the sons of Jacob, to force them out of the land to look for salvation somewhere. And he brings them at that proper time into Egypt. And of course, that's not the end of the story. And then the next saga of God's wisdom is displayed in the slavery that then develops there in Egypt. And God will then rescue millions of them, millions of the descendants of Jacob from Egypt through that most wonderful event of the Exodus. And it just goes on and on and on. And along the way, at every stop, at every turn, you see the evil one seeking to impede. You see the evil one seeking to stop. And all along the way, God effortlessly, without draining any of his power, without running to any kind of frustration or moving to a plan B, he accomplishes his purpose with beautiful, perfect skill. Proverbs 16, verse 9, something 
so small as a man's steps. Man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. In fact, look at all of Proverbs 16, and you have this theme over and over again of God's providence, of how his wisdom is at work in accomplishing his purposes. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And you've all put water in the hand, and you can move it effortlessly. Water in the hand is essentially weightless. And you can move it this way or that way. And, and Solomon says, this is what the Lord does with kings. And then, of course, that wonderful text of God's providence of Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And that's not just a promise of what will happen in that moment of glorification when we see our Savior. No, this is already in effect for all of those who have been called and justified. This activity is already happening in your lives even right now. God is moving pieces into your life this way and that way. More pieces than you are ever aware of from geopolitical pieces to the pieces of the cells in your body that will result in illnesses or health. He's moving them all together and he's doing that with his perfect plan in place. And every little action is his plan and he's doing it perfectly with matchless skill. And while you don't see it today or maybe even tomorrow or next year, there is coming a time when you will look back and you will say, wow. Again, Herman Bavink states it this way, the wisdom of God is manifest in the creation, ordering, guidance, and government of all things. Wisdom is and remains the master worker, the fashioner of all things, which creates and governs all things, leading them onward to their destination, which is the glorification of God's name. Sometimes our view, men, is too deistic. We think that God has simply wound up a clock And he's letting the clock do its own thing, and he is removed. And the circumstances that we face, the hardships, the joys, those kinds of things, we attribute to more natural causes. We fail to see his hand when he is the one moving each gear, each piece, at the proper time, at the proper distance, all of it controlled by his direct wisdom. Number four, we see in Scripture that God's wisdom is apexed in the incarnation of his Son. I mean, if you want to look for the most amazing demonstration of wisdom, of skill, of knowing how to bring omnipotence and omniscience and omnibenevolence all together in one central event... Look at the incarnation. God the Son taking on human nature. What wisdom. What wisdom. We see it in a text like Galatians 4, verses 3 to 6, where Paul talks about this. And he talks more specifically in in verse 4. He says, but when the fullness of time came, 
And that wasn't because God was waiting, wondering when this moment would happen, but the fullness of time being that time that God had designed when he would bring into power this Roman emperor and Roman empire. And it would have all the, the highways and the byways developed. And at the proper time, at that time, then God skillfully brings to, to fruition this, this prophecy that was made centuries earlier that there would come a Savior. He sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.24 that Christ, that title for the God-man, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Again, you want to see God's wisdom in its most demonstrable way for us? Look at the God-man Jesus Christ. He demonstrates it. He epitomizes it. 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom of God. Colossians 2 verse 3, speaking of again the incarnate one, Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, he is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Skill. God's skill was no more greatly manifest in our world than in the God-man Jesus Christ, than in the incarnation. Whether it's the the virgin birth, think of that. The, The hypostatic union, that unity of divine and human natures in one person. Whether it's the atonement that Christ will go on to achieve, whether it's the resurrection of the dead, whether it's it's his return in glory, all of that speaks of God's measureless, boundless, amazing wisdom. Fifth, we can see God's wisdom on a more practical level vindicated in our salvation, in the salvation of sinners This is where God vindicates his wisdom and shows that his wisdom is of a completely different category than than the best wisdom of this world. It doesn't even measure up. You can't even really say that what's in this world is wisdom at all. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 8 to 10, Paul, Paul describes the wisdom of God's salvation, his message, his work of redemption with these words. He said this to me, and notice here there's emphasis placed on Paul's surprise. He's shocked. He doesn't understand this. Even as one who by this time has already been saved for a couple of decades, he's shocked at this reality. He said to me, The very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what was the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that, now notice this, in the preaching of the gospel to those who are so unworthy, the preaching of the gospel to see those who are unworthy saved, Paul says this, so that the manifold wisdom of God 
would be made known through the church. And notice this. This is something we often don't think about. Manifest the the wisdom of God through the church, not even to the rulers of this world. Paul doesn't even consider that here. That's secondary. But that it be manifest to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through his work of saving you, one utterly unworthy of his grace, of his goodness, of his blessedness, of eternal life, in saving you, God makes you a trophy, not just to those in this room, not just to those in this world. He makes you a trophy to the rulers and authorities of a world we do not even see. That is the manifestation of God's wisdom. We see that also come to, come to Paul's mind when he's describing the, the work of the cross, the, the message of the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I won't read through that section, but notice how Paul says that the gospel is the wisdom of God. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Has not God made the wisdom of this world foolish? That is what God does in the power of the gospel. And when we stop and think of it, and when we sing hymns like Amazing Grace, and we sing of these other great, wonderful hymns that extol the doctrine of salvation, we have to look at ourselves and say, why me? Why did I benefit of this? And it has nothing to do with me. It all has to do with the wisdom of God. He can do this, and he does it with perfect skill. God may have saved you in a gutter somewhere, and you may be ashamed of that. And yes, we must always look with disdain on the chains of sin that once shackled us, but know this, don't look on disdain at your conversion, that moment when God saved you. That is his skill, and he loves to put it on display. That dirty sinner that unworthy sinner, I can save him. And here's how. And he does it. It's his skill. Now, as we bring this to some some implications, what do these wonderful truths about God's wisdom teach us? Let me focus tonight just on three as we close. First of all, God's wisdom should be the cause of our fervent worship our fervent worship. This is what it was for the, the biblical writers. So often, as we've already read, as soon as they think of the handiwork of God, as they think of his providence, as they think of salvation, immediately they, they're turned to this perfection called wisdom and they immediately respond in praise. And that's what it should do with us. Psalm 136.5, give thanks to him who made the heavens with skill, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Recently, I was reading a little bit about something called fractals, and I don't know much about fractals. I'm not a mathematician. It's not my area, and so I better be careful what I say. But this is a definition of fractals, and this is part of God's creation. A fractal is a type of mathematical shape that is infinitely complex, 
In essence, a fractal is a pattern that, cha- that repeats forever. And every part of a fractal, regardless of how zoomed in or zoomed out you are, it looks similar to the whole image. And, 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 and as you get these microscopic, this powerful microscopic view of, of things, you see fractals. And we've never seen them before because these are just new powers we're getting through science. They zoom in and further and further and there's fractals and they're beautiful. You just look at the tip of a pen and you think, big deal, you zoom in, you see the fractals. That's God's wisdom and it should lead us to looking at anything that God has created and say, wow, I adore you. We saw that in Daniel chapter 2, 20. Let the name of God be praised, be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. We could go to Romans eleven thirty three to 34. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Let it, let it, let it spur you toward this fervent worship where you just look everywhere and, and you see beyond the fractals. You see beyond these things and you say, wisdom, 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 God's wisdom. And it lights your heart on fire to adore this skillful God. Number two, God's wisdom should make it easier for us to be content in our circumstances. Like Job, we find this difficult, don't we? Our circumstances, especially painful ones. And I'm with you on that. I'm a grumbler just like the rest. But in the midst of that, we have to come back to this doctrine, this perfection of God that, that teaches us that he is all wise. And this confession, this understanding, this embrace of God's wisdom, his perfect skill, must lead to a silencing of our complaints. And of course, in our day-to-day, in our hyper-psychologized world today, it's all about expressing whatever comes to mind all the dirtiness and disgust of your heart, just fling it on God and that's a good thing and that's absolutely contrary to the Scriptures. In the moment of those times when you most want to impugn God and His wisdom, you return to the teachings of Scripture and let the scriptural testimony remind you that God is all wise and He does everything well. There is no circumstance in your life that is being wasted. Nothing. Isaiah 40, verses 13 to 14. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Who has become his counselor or informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed the way of understanding? No one. You can't improve God's wisdom. And when you think that you can complain to change his mind, you are a fool. You don't know what you're asking. You're like the clay vessel that Paul talks about in Romans 9.20, where Paul says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God, to this all-wise one, to suggest that you have a different plan for him to implement in your life? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Our confession of God's wisdom must fuel a dynamic faith that accepts the fact that His ways, though hidden from our understanding, are always right. 
always right. The secret things, indeed, belong to God. We need to leave them there. We can't trust our own heart. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. But in all our ways, acknowledging Him, that's the walk of faith. And then we rest in Romans 8, 28, knowing that God is causing all things. That's absolute all things. As the believer, you have that promise. All there means every single little detail. Every movement in your life, all things God is using to bring you to his goodness. J.A. Packer says this, for the truth is that God in his wisdom to make and keep us humble and to teach us to walk by faith has hidden from us almost everything that we should like to know about the providential purposes which he is working out in the churches and in our lives. We just want to know, but the wisdom of God says, you know what, I don't need to. It's okay that I don't. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, do not presume to be the governor of the world, but leave the reins of government in the hands who made it and best knows how to rule it. Stephen Charnock, the Puritan theologian, said this, we must suffer God, allow God to be wiser than ourselves and acknowledge that there is something sovereign in his ways not to be measured by the feeble reed of our weak understandings. John Newton, the author of that great hymn, Amazing Grace, said this, how happy are they who can resign all to him who see his hands in every dispensation and believe that he chooses better for them than they could possibly choose for yourself. And men, I will die on this hill. This is what I believe, that for each one of us now, we may wonder why we're enduring what we're enduring and why those things happen to us. We may wonder with that, but if you're in Christ, I know this for sure. This is a guarantee. The day is coming. The day is coming when you will be able to look back on those things and say, I'm glad it happened that way. Now that I see, I would have it no other way. That day's coming, and that means now, in the present moment, we have to live like we believe that. There's a wonderful poem by William Cooper called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. It goes like this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh take courage. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Finally, that God is all wise means that we must look to him for wisdom. His wisdom should motivate us to acquire it wherever he gives it. Through his word, first and foremost, 
and through counselors, good disciples of the word. Wisdom is a communicable attribute, and God has designed it that we have skill to. He has designed it not that we should live in this life as perpetual fools and failures, but God has designed to share that wisdom out of the goodness of his heart so that we might too grow in skill and success. And so the the exhortation to you is acquire wisdom. And what are you doing, men, to acquire that? How does your life show that in the majesty of God's word where he has put all of these riches of wisdom, what are you doing to acquire this wisdom? Take its instruction. Don't pursue silver or gold, for wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her. This is the skill of living well and God has promised that those who seek him in faith, believing him to be who he has revealed him to be, will have access to this wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this important reminder. We confess to you our quickness to grumble to judge our circumstances as unfair and unjust and to heap blame upon you and to throw your wisdom into doubt. Father, we confess that as those who are feeble, finite, fickle, cleanse us from this. And use this precious truth of your wisdom to first and foremost to instill within us a greater adoration for who you are. You do all things well. You waste nothing. And everything that we encounter in our lives as those who have been wonderfully saved by you is a precious act, a skillful one, to bring us to utmost blessedness. Bring about this revolution in our thinking, this great contentment and enjoyment and happiness in all of our circumstances, knowing that they come directly from your hand. And may we, inspired by your great wisdom, pursue it ourselves that we might bring pleasure to you as we reflect back to you that skill. We ask this so that you would receive all the glory, and we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, who is wisdom embodied. Amen. Men, you are dismissed. Remember, next week is our